Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 42 of Haunted Muse, and the fourth episode featuring my novel, Skeleton's Blood, read in a weekly serial format. Okay, here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 9. The ride out to Newport was enlightening, to say the least, for Hazel. Normally, she would have felt apprehensive to ride at night in a car through a city she did not know, given the heightened possibility of passing through neighborhoods which might have been full of dangerous peelers. However, Hazel quickly came to understand that traveling with a vampire had its advantages. When the driver stopped at a red light just before crossing the bridge into Newport, a group of peelers rushed toward the car. Even before the half-dozen or so of them could get within twenty feet, they stopped, as abruptly as if they'd run into a wall. Glancing over toward her companion in the back seat, Hazel could see that Dodge's eyes glowed with a bright green sulfurous fire as he stared directly at the peelers. One by one, they turned and shambled off in the opposite direction, looking confused. "'How did you do that?' Hazel asked make them just turn away. Dodge thought carefully for a moment as he scanned their surroundings, making sure that all of the peelers had gone before he answered. It's difficult to explain, really. I just push a thought into their minds. The virus has eaten most of their cognitive abilities away, so it's easy, really. I plant the suggestion that what they're running toward is dangerous, sudden death. Even peelers can understand that with their minds have rotted away. Most humans fear death, constant beyond anything else. In a way, it's the truth. I am sudden death, although I'd rather not have to prove it to them. That wasting disease makes their flesh taste wretched. The vampire stuck out his tongue in disgust as Hazel allowed thoughts of Dodge's words to sink in. Half an hour later, when they pulled into the circular drive, Hazel recognized the place at once from its gigantic Corinthian columns. She'd been inside once before on a vacation, taking one of the standard self-guided tours. Never in a million years did she dream that she'd return one night in a Rolls Royce, accompanied by a vampire. Marble house, she exhaled, taking in the vastness of it as she peered over the sculptured railing and into the reflecting pool. This is the seat of the sea? Personally, I refer to it as Newport's White House, Dodge remarked nonchalantly. Although, President Graves down the way might object to that, as I hear she's now referring to Bois d'Or as the Holiday White House. He shrugged, putting air quotes around the last few words. This does quite resemble the original from the outside, does it not? Hazel nodded her head in agreement. Although she'd not made the connection before, the similarities between the two residences were striking. However, I must say, having been through both, Alva's decorating taste is far superior. Though one must take into account that she needn't concern herself with maintaining any facade of folksiness for proletarian appeal. I'm sure Alva is glad to leave that popularity contest for our Madam President to manage over at her place. 
having been a Vanderbilt at least for some time and later a Belmont, is far more advantageous in that regard. No obnoxious need to appear down to earth when one's rightful place is among the stars. They'd reached the massive scrolled bronze entryway at this point, and just as Hazel was about to ask Dodge when he'd last visited the White House, whether the original or the new holiday version, the doors swung open. The hinges groaned under the heavy weight of their burden, yet as she stepped forward, Hazel could see nothing that had caused them to move. From inside, an unseen voice echoed around them, as richly opulent as the gilded doors themselves, and, as Hazel noted, slightly southern in its accent. Dr. Goodnight, welcome to my home. Please follow Dr. Stewart into the gold room and have a seat. We're about to begin. Hazel glanced around the entry hall to see a specter of a tall, stately black woman, exquisitely dressed in a corseted Victorian gown covered in lace and seed pearls, floating gracefully down the marble staircase. Her eyes flickered silver as she spoke, just as Lovecraft's had done. We thank you for coming, Dr. Goodnight, and for your support of our cause. Following Dr. Stewart to the entrance of the gold room with Dodge close behind, Hazel realized how the bronze doors must have worked as Dr. Stewart raised her strong-looking, long-fingered hand, swirling it in the air before the door in a little flip, as if turning the knob but not actually touching it. The latch clicked, and the door swung open. True to its name, the gold room was astonishingly gold. The walls, the ceiling, the mirrors, the candelabra, literally every surface that Hazel's eyes fell upon twinkled with endless gilded ornamentation. Cherubim, goddesses, and mythical beasts cavorted in the light of dozens upon dozens of white-tapered candles, which were placed around the room, illuminating it in a way that felt lit from within. Beneath the high rococo ceiling was a ring of eight gilded chairs. Their high-backed, plush-green velvet seats were empty, though, as their occupants stood at attention in the shadows cast behind the blazing six-foot-tall candelabra placed in between each of them. The entire room seemed to pulsate with inner fire. Hazel felt as if she were standing within the heart of the sun. Her eyes readjusting to the otherworldly glow came to focus on a dark-haired woman who appeared to be in her early forties, in a gown of black silk brocade. She stood by a large claw-footed golden chair in front of the fireplace. No, Hazel corrected herself, not a chair, but a throne, as this particular seat was twice the size of the others. Yet the woman who stood in front of it did not seem diminished in proportion. Rather, the enormous seat, with its ornate scrolled woodwork radiating out like a fan behind her sparkling black dress, made her appearance into a jewel, a black diamond perfectly set into this crown of a room. Waving a jewel-encrusted hand, the woman in black beckoned Hazel to enter the circle. As she did, Hazel's eyes nervously scanned the darkness above each seat for the faces of those whom she felt were standing behind them. Seeing none, Hazel crossed the circle, taking the extended hand of the woman in black and kissing it lightly. She curtsied. 
Hazel could feel the woman's gaze fix upon her as she did so, and heard her say over her bowed head to Dodge, She is most charming, Don. I approve. Then to Hazel, Please have a seat, dear, right here next to me, by Edith. As Hazel straightened, she heard a rustling behind her, and turned just in time to see the woman in black raise her left hand, palm open, as if saying a pledge to the remainder of the circle. Lowering her arm stiffly from the elbow down, all of those standing in the shadows behind their chairs slipped round them and into their seats. Examining the faces that surrounded her, Hazel could see that those gathered were all either vampires or ghosts. She was the only human in the room. Their eyes glowed green and silver, each so much brighter than the candles that the amount of light in the darkened room almost doubled, so that now she could see each of them distinctly. Hazel decided they must have been standing with their eyes closed so that they would have been completely obscured by the shadows. That's how they do it, she thought, the paranormal investigator part of her brain marveling at the easy revelation of what had been for her a lifelong mystery. That's why we can't ever see a full-bodied apparition except in flashes or in orbs. If they don't open their eyes, the illumination of their spirit can't shine through. Turning to the woman on her right, Hazel recognized the profile of the ghost sitting beside her immediately, from the thick Edwardian-style poof of her hair to her prominent chin. "'You're Edith Wharton,' Hazel gasped. The ghost leaned over to Hazel and cupped a gloved hand next to her ear, whispering, "'Afterwards, dear, I will explain everything to you. But not now. Alva is about to speak.' Although the corners of her mouth barely tipped upward, Hazel could feel a sort of happiness extending from the crinkled corners of her eyes. Although Edith's gaze was as silvery cool as that of Lovecraft's spirit form, Hazel found it more reassuring. To be approved as a personal confidant by perhaps the most socially discerning woman in the history of American letters was definitely something. Hazel had no time to ponder what exactly before Alva, the woman in black, called the meeting to order. Thank you all for answering my call. You know I am loath to summon you to shoulder any new burdens if they can be prevented, and I am especially grateful to you. Dr. Stewart, for appearing on such short notice. My apologies for disturbing your rest. The ghost who had led Hazel into the gold room gave a small nod of acknowledgement, but said nothing, as Alva continued. However, tonight, a very dire circumstance has been brought to my attention that is of the utmost urgency. Since it threatens our president, it may indeed threaten the very existence of our nation, as well as the existence of this sea. A rumbling of concern rolled around the room like an oncoming thunderstorm. As you already know, for months now, we have kept watch over our new neighbor, President Graves, out of concern for preserving the privacy of the seed with such a notable person drawing potentially unwanted attention to the area. Tonight, I bring to you an added level of concern. Our own Reverend Dodge has it on good confidence, brought to him by his loyal scribe, Mr. Lovecraft, that attempts are being made either to kill or to bring into a relationship of thrall our Madam President. 
further that once President Graves has been incapacitated, the perpetrator plans to exploit her newly created American Healthcare Service as a vehicle by which to advance his own interest through increasing the size of his competing sieve to the point that it disrupts our current balance of power, and he is able to reassert dominance. Now, I know we have all agreed not to interfere in political matters, but when such matters have presented themselves nearly upon our very doorstep, who is it? A gruff voice from the far side of the circle broke in. The vampire who had spoken was dressed in roughly the same colonial style as the Reverend Dodge, yet the two could not be more different. Whereas Dodge was short and slight, this man was tall and powerfully built. His skin still retained what appeared to be its original walnut hue, which contrasted starkly with the paleness of the other vampires in the circle, even though it seemed a bit ashen, as if he were ill. And his accent, while somewhat British colonial, had a very different sort of flavor to it that Hazel couldn't quite place. Wearing no jacket, but instead only a vest and white linen shirt open at the collar with sleeves rolled up to the elbows, Hazel could see the thick packs of muscle in his chest and biceps threatening to burst out of their seams as he leaned forward. It must be Brooke, the vampire growled accusingly. He's the only chap that's bold and bloody stupid enough to try to pull off something at that scale. Dodge leaned toward the man. That's only part of it, Kobe. Wait until you hear. Silence! Alva raised her hand, and Dodge froze immediately. Donovan, I think you've done enough talking this evening already. For the rest of this meeting, I will lead the discussion. Alva's look toward Dodge was contemptuous. But while we're on that topic, what were you thinking, Don? I mean, really? Did you honestly expect to receive a positive reaction by just ringing the president up on the phone? As a rank stranger from whom she'd had no prior contact and thus no reason to trust? Dodge stared down at the floor like a scolded child. Well, I'd hoped to secure an audience with her tonight. I did have her number, so I thought... Alva cut him off again. No, Don, that's the problem. You didn't think. You reacted. After all the times you've warned me and the rest of the seed not to make snap decisions about how time and patience are the chief gifts among all we've been given to enjoy but that mortals lack. Despite all of that sound and logical advice, you reacted as any mortal man would have. You leapt to useless action without considering the consequences. And now, where are we? nowhere. Worse off than if you'd simply kept your mouth closed, relaying the message to tonight's meeting and waited for the seed to... Please don't get on your soapbox, Alva. That's not going to help anyone either, said another voice. This one was a low, purring alto, the type of feminine voice that Hazel felt Scott Fitzgerald would have said was full of money. She wore an exquisitely tailored gown of flame-colored silk, and her fine-featured face was framed in a luxurious updo similar to Edith's. I'm sure that Don merely felt that time was of the essence. Since Donovan is the most senior member of our seed, he should attempt to intervene and save us all the trouble, if he could. 
Alva rolled her eyes, sending twin beams of green light flashing around the room with the intensity of her disdain. Ever the romantic, aren't you, Elizabeth? Wanting to allow a man to swoop in and rescue the fair maiden. Never mind that said maiden is currently the most powerful human, man or woman, in the free world and might rightfully be suspicious or even resentful at such a random and ill-timed attempt for a rescue. Truthfully, I can see both sides, said Edith, intervening, Hazel thought, in hopes of putting the issue to rest so they could proceed with the meeting. We've known that Prine was planning to use his position to eliminate Graves for months now, yet we've done nothing. Add the fact that Brooke made a direct attempt on the life of the vice president's wife and daughter this evening, and it's only natural to think that the powder keg of peril in which President Graves has previously been comfortable living might have reached a flashpoint for him. Thus, before you blame Don for reacting too strongly, we should all blame ourselves for failing to act for so long. I agree with Edith said still another vampire, sitting on the opposite side of the circle. She wore a sapphire blue satin gown with thin straps and a white fox fur wrap, in a manner more reminiscent of the high society of the twenties, Hazel thought, than the Edwardian-style dresses of the other women. Being such as we are, time is normally of no consequence to us. However, we've sat on the knowledge that Prine intends not only to create a seethe of his own at last, but a seethe to rule all others for months, and that he has been conspiring with the president to do so. She looked around the room, and as she did, Hazel noticed that her eyes were a slightly different shade of green than the others, more of a turquoise hue. It's so easy to live here, on top of the world content in our splendor to remain idle. Yet it is a false contentment, for like citizens of Pompeii, we have seen the volcano smoking, and now with news of this attack, we can feel the ground begin to rumble beneath our feet. It's only a matter of time before Vesuvius erupts, and we're all buried and forgotten beneath the ash. Beatrice, your words are, as usual, vivid and heartfelt. They ring true to the sentiment that I sense all of you are feeling here tonight. Therefore, we should continue now with the meeting, as planned. My apologies, Donovan. Perhaps I was a bit harsh. Although I remain perturbed at your methods, I know that you merely wanted what was best for the sieve and for the country, which we all love. Dodge resettled himself into his chair, loosened his cravat, and pulled his freshly refilled snuff box out of his waistcoat pocket. Taking a pinch and a noisy sniff <laughs> that sounded like a horse at its trough, Edith chuckled to herself. Her shoulders shook merrily beneath the slightly puffed sleeves of her amethyst-colored organza gown, while Alva and Elizabeth exchanged looks that said, What can you do with him? To address Kobe's previous inquiry, Alva began again. As he has traveled from Block Island to be with us tonight and must be brought up to speed, President Graves has experienced a vision of her own death at the hands of Minister Prime. However, Alva turned to address Kobe directly. As you are also well aware from your own wife Catherine's visions, such things are not set in stone. Seers merely view the future as it may be 
not as it must be irrevocably. There is still time, potentially, to intervene. Your granddaughter has, like many seers, tried to take matters into her own hands by reaching out to Ned, Captain Brooke, in an attempt to pit vampire against vampire, so to speak. Which would be logical, I suppose, given her political career was made doing just such a thing, throwing gasoline on competing fires and allowing them to devour one another, whilst she steps through the flames unscathed, neatly as a newborn phoenix. However, what she doesn't realize is, Kobe finished the thought for Alba, that Brooke's going to double-cross her too. He understands Prion's plan, and he believes it would work better with him in charge. He's right, Alva agreed. Prine is a strong vampire, the oldest that we have here in America, to my knowledge. Yet, until he is actually able to put his plan into action, to finish creating his chosen army of physician-led vampires playing as gods, Prine is vulnerable supported only by mindless thralls and not fully independent vampires who have pledged their true and willing allegiance to him. Prime can never rest peacefully, for he has no one to rely on to protect his slumber, which is why he has spent so many generations traipsing around the wilds of Maine. A vampire who cannot be found cannot be threatened. However, this choice to step out of the shadows and into the spotlight is a very dangerous one for him. He knows this, and it is making him desperate. Prine has shown too much of his teeth to Graves, and now she fears his bite enough to consider seeking protection elsewhere. Which I tried to offer her, began Dodge again, but Dr. Stewart stopped him this time. She'll never accept it from you. Not after she's already been made to feel intimidated by both Prine and Brooke, Dr. Stewart said. A woman like her has probably spent a lifetime fending off men who are trying to push her around under the guise of protection. Dr. Stewart turned toward Alva. Let me go and try to reason with her, as we discussed. After they get over the initial shock of seeing us, mortals are less intimidated by ghosts. Plus, my being an African-American woman and a doctor might... Seeing where Dr. Stewart's logic was heading, the rest of the seethe murmured in agreement. Yes. Yes. Yes, I believe you're right, Susan. That's precisely why I've summoned you here tonight, to seek the seethe's approval for what I proposed to you earlier. Among all of us gathered here, you are perhaps the one whom President Graves would be most likely to listen to. Although there is likely one other spirit not in attendance tonight who might consider being of assistance and who might also be persuasive. Alva looked expectantly at Kobe, who in turn withdrew backward into his chair. Oh no, Catherine would never do it. You know how she refuses even to attend meetings of the Seethe, especially when she knows that we are going to be discussing directly the possibility of intervening in politics. Not even for her granddaughter, Alva pressed. For her own, forgive the expression, flesh and blood. I can speak to her too, Kobe, if you think it will help, Dr. Stewart entreated. I know Catherine distrusts everything political, but she must be proud enough of Tamika not to want to see her killed. And on top of that, she detests Brooke. We all know that. 
Perhaps you will persuade her to break a personal rule and intervene just this once. Kobe grimaced, realizing that he had no choice but to present the matter to his wife. Running both hands along the side of his head and gathering the long, thick ropes of his locks together, he seemed to be nervously massaging the base of his skull with his thumbs in anticipation of the headache to come for a few moments before responding. Okay, I'll speak to her about it tonight, as soon as I get home. Good, said Alva, reassuringly. That's settled, then. Dr. Stewart and, possibly, Catherine will go to meet with President Graves tomorrow night and make her aware of the fact that we are willing to offer her protection from both Prine and Brooke, if she will give up her plan to utilize the AHS for her own monetary benefit and to gain entrance to this life an independent member of our seed instead. Just how are we going to do that, pray? came a small voice from the last vampire in the circle, who hadn't yet spoken all evening. Hazel noticed she was a young woman, just a teenager, and unlike the others, wore an inexpensive printed floral dress. Prime is an old vampire, yes, and powerful, but against the group of us, I agree. He's no match. And as everyone knows, once their master dies, the thralls die off as well. We could truthfully protect President Graves from him. However, Captain Brooke has, heaven knows, how many full vampires now at his command and under his oaths of loyalty. More than the original 26, I assure you of that. Looking around this circle, I can only count, the girl began pointing at the other women and her voices rising in agitation. Your own husband, Alva, and yours, Elizabeth, and many more of their set. I've seen right here in Newport with my own eyes. Almost every captain of industry to whom Captain Brooke has made the offer of eternal life for centuries has accepted or been killed. Against this multitude, we bring the six of us, three, maybe four ghosts, if we can get Howard agitated enough to leave the library, and one newly enlisted human who's not even turned? I'm no mathematician, but those numbers don't add up to me. We're going to need reinforcements. Mercy has an excellent point, Edith said. Unless Dr. Stewart and Catherine can talk the President of the United States into her spending her life sealed in an underground bunker somewhere, it's not possible for fewer than a dozen of us to hold off Brooks' hordes now that he's gotten wind of her vulnerability. There are simply too many of them. We have to come up with some other kind of strategy. Edith's silvery gaze settled on Dodge. Did Lovecraft say anything about this vice president whom he was watching? I'm not very familiar with him since he was only appointed a few months ago. Do you think he might be receptive to a visit? And through him, we might concoct some additional sort of scheme? Dodge's serious expression brightened a bit at the renewed prospect of his involvement being welcomed again. Howard said that the man... Merritt is his name, Colton Merritt, personally witnessed the attack on his wife and daughter, yes. Well, that would save us the shock of having to introduce him to the concept of our existence, at least, said Elizabeth. Are they close, the man and his wife and daughter? Would he be interested in protecting them? How many men wouldn't be interested in protecting their families? Kobe scoffed. Elizabeth shot him a dead-lighted look as if to say, Really? Do you have to ask me that? 
to which an expression of realization at whom he was speaking to seemed to flicker across Kobe's face, and he fell silent again. From what Howard related to me, he appears to have at least an average amount of concern for their well-being, Dodge replied. He left his work to visit the daughter in the hospital, spent some time talking over her condition with the girl's college roommate. He did argue with the wife, though that's natural, they're separated, but he returned with shopping bags full of clothes for her, so there must be some kind of connection there still. As was his habit when pondering a matter deeply, Dodge reached for his snuffbox again, but seeing the disdainful gaze from the lady vampires present, he put it back, self-consciously. I've only seen him on television. Handsome chap. Kind of like something out of an old western. Former television star and pro athlete. But despite that, he seems reasonable and open-minded. I think he'd be receptive to a visit from me to enlighten him regarding the circumstances. Alva's eyed Dodge slyly. Good-looking, you say. How kind of you to volunteer, Don, for such a difficult duty of offering him assistance and a sympathetic ear to this, she searched for the right words, matinee idol cowboy. Edith glanced sidewise at Hazel, raising an eyebrow that Hazel comprehended immediately without words. Dodge twisted about in his seat, uncrossing and recrossing his legs. I'm not volunteering merely because he's a good-looking fellow. I'm simply watching out for the good of the sieve and the country, Hazel finished for him, as she returned Edith's expression with a cocked eyebrow of her own, at least as it benefits the right reverend Donovan Dodge. At this, a twitter of feminine laughter, underscored by Kobe's deeper chuckle, circled around the room. She's fitting in already, Don, quipped Alva, merrier than she'd been all evening, having gotten the best of Dodge at last. And I'm convinced. If Merritt's already seen the worst of what we can be from Ned, he certainly won't be that shocked by a visit from you, Don. You're a master of finesse. Kobe, you and Dr. Stewart have your work cut out for you in getting Catherine to accompany you in visiting graves, but I have a feeling she'll come around. Edith, she continued, would you mind going to spy on Captain Brooke for us later tonight? I'd like to have some intelligence on where his mind and body are at present. Mercy can lead you to him, if she's willing, and then return to meet Elizabeth, Beatrice, and myself, so that we can begin to rouse and rally the rest of the troops. The women exchanged glances across the circle with one another, assenting without words. Wonderful. Then it's all settled. We'll be about our assigned duties then. Have a good day's rest and reconvene tomorrow at midnight to share our intelligence and decide on a plan of further action, if it's warranted. As the group began to depart, Edith waved Hazel over to the side. How completely confused are you by everything that was just said? I caught all of the what's-to-be-done parts, because Don's explained those to me, Hazel replied. It's just the who's who and why that need a bit more clarification. Edith's silvery eyes glowed brightly as her cool hand came to rest on Hazel's forearm, causing a now-familiar shiver to prickle her scalp and run down her back. Follow me out to the tea room where we can speak privately. Giving the scoop on who's who and why they came to be that way is my specialty. This is the end of Chapter 9. Be sure to tune in next week 
for the next chapter of Skeleton's Blood here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Thank <music> you.